I'm talking to you tonight about performance orientation, which is another really, really, really significant um, thing that we must deal with if, if we're going to freely follow Jesus and make an impact for uh, his kingdom. Um, and this is something that is prevalent uh, across culture, um, in the world, in the church, it's kind of everywhere. Um, and hopefully as we kind of journey through, uh, you might learn some ways to recognize it. Um, I'm obviously using, utilizing, this is uh, one of the units in the larger house, one of the teachings. Um, great content in that, um, but I'm not going to be teaching you necessarily how to deal with it, more just how to recognize it. And then the encouragement will be if you're like, man, I've I think I've got some performance orientation, then I'll leave that up to you as a responsible leader that you are to go and source some prayer ministry and get to the root of, of where that's coming from. All right, so uh, in the Elijah House outline, uh, it talks about uh, performance orientation being the constant tendency of a person to fall back into striving by human effort. So our minds and our spirits can know the free gift of salvation, but our hearts retain their habit to earn love by performing. We live unaware that motives other than God's love have begun to corrupt our serving through striving, tension, and fear. And there's a great scripture you've probably heard before, Galatians 3, and it's, this is Paul speaking. It says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? So we understand as well this is a, a symptomatic of someone, whether they're a Christian or not. Um, we can have this kind of internal structure, this way of, of behaving and responding to the world uh, that is driven for us to perform. Um, so some of the, uh, you know, essentially... Some of the noticing parts of what performance orientation is. So it is an attitude or a, or a belief system, not a set of behaviors. So we talk about performance orientation, we're not looking at the outward working of something, we're actually looking at the internal motivation behind. So it's the why do we do what we do, not necessarily what you do. The difference between a performance-oriented person and someone who is just serving out of freedom, the outworking can look the same. And this is why it's actually hard to identify. And particularly in the church, when we can have a, a root of performance orientation, and, but we're doing good things. So it's not like we're out there doing bad things. We're actually doing good things, and we're doing them for God, but from the wrong root, for the wrong reason. And I think, actually, this is possibly one of the... Uh, it's, it can end up being one of the greatest assets to a church leadership team is having a whole lot of people who are performance-oriented um, because they will work hard. Uh, now, I'm not saying that people know that and identify that, uh, but early on in our church journey, I, I identified it. Um, I think God had taken me through a process before planting Paradox of actually ridding me of that because performance became my identity, so uh, I didn't have a lot of uh, sense of um, like self-esteem or inner security of my identity before I became a Christian. Even then when I you know, came into the church, it, it, I just didn't really know who I was. Um, but what I discovered is that I got involved in the youth ministry and then I would just serve and I loved serving. I didn't love kids. I didn't particularly appreciate the, these kids that I was looking after. Uh, but I just loved you know, working and serving and doing that. It was fun hanging out with people. Um, but what started to happen is that people started to notice me and started to praise me for what I was doing. And, uh, and you know, it was, you know, words would be like, man, if you want something done, ask Brad, he'll get it done. And it was, it was, it was them affirming me and affirming my behavior. But because I didn't have a, a, an identity underneath my behavior, it trickled in and actually started to form my identity. So I then did many years of striving, striving, striving for approval and acceptance and finally got to that point where I was like, this is too much. And God took me through a kind of deconstruction process. Um, but recognizing that... In a church context, many, many people live with performance orientation. So they're wanting to please God. They're wanting to please their pastor or their leader. Maybe they're wanting to please their boss. But in the church kind of context, you've got all these people who are doing lots of great stuff, but then eventually they end up crashing and burning because the motivation behind that is driving them beyond their own capacity and it's just rooted in, in brokenness. 
So my concern for the body of Christ is that we don't build the church on the backs of broken people. So for us as, as like a culture, we just if we smell performance orientation, we just like we're not having a, a bar of that. So we will like if somebody comes into the church and they're super equipped and super great and all this stuff, but there's performance in there, we're like, no thanks, just you can just sit back and relax because we're not going to abuse you by using your brokenness to achieve good things for the church um, because that's, I mean, that's abusive, really. Now, I, again, I think, I think probably a lot of pastors and leaders and bosses, they don't understand that they're performance-oriented themselves. So they just think, well, I'm working hard and everyone should work hard and it's, it's for a good goal, which is, you know, people meeting Jesus or the church. It's all good stuff, yet it's driven by, by brokenness internally. So it's really serious so it is um, it's built into us from a young age so again oftentimes it's hard to identify because it's just inherent from the time that we learn human interaction that performance orientation can be um, as a part of that so it's a striving for acceptance acknowledgement and identity through what we do in other words our our performance so we get acceptance through how we perform, we get acknowledgement through how, so that praise, which is what, you know, we all long for that. No one, we all like to be affirmed, amen? Yeah, yeah and affirmation's a good thing. It's like we, we can, there's a healthy dimension of affirmation, um, but then it actually forms our identity. So my whole sense of well-being and who I am is then tied to how well I perform, how well I do, which is obviously unhealthy. So performance orientation is doing the right things for the wrong reasons. They can be good things, but it's coming from an unhealthy place. You're welcome to raise your hand and ask questions at any time. So where does performance orientation come from? Where, these are some areas that it can come from. It can come from prenatal and birth trauma. Uh, so where, uh, and this is something that thankfully, you know, not long after our kids, we became aware of this sort of stuff, but... Um, you know, it can be a child being unwanted, so an unwanted pregnancy. Um, and maybe that's spoken about um, by the parents or there's just a sense of knowing that this child is unwanted. They still maybe carry through uh, with the birth of the child, but that child in the womb is, is picking up all of that sense of, like, you, you weren't planned, you weren't wanted, um, which is, is significant. Um, and so, therefore, they're trying to earn their place in life. So a child, you know, even in the womb is, is, is acknowledging, I'm not wanted here, so I've got to prove myself that I'm worthy to exist, essentially. Um, if you haven't done any reading or study into, like, prenatal and birth trauma, uh, there's, there's plenty of secular scientific studies around the impact of, uh, of the fetus in the womb. So this is not just a spiritual thing, but we do understand from a Christian perspective that at that point of conception that... God puts his, your spirit comes alive. So you might not have, your brain might not be formed, your physical body might not be formed, but your spirit is alive. Um, for me, um, one of the biggest breakthroughs I've had in prayer ministry was related to prenatal, so in the womb trauma that I experienced. And it was around, um, my mum was going through some, some difficulties. So essentially, they were living in a caravan at the time, traveling with where my dad was working and my brother had pulled a kettle of boiling hot water onto himself so burnt down his arm he had to get skin grass in, in hospital for a long time um, my mum became pregnant with me during that time but uh, she shared and it was only like I had a prayer ministry intensive planned and it just came up in conversation she's like oh yeah I remember when that happened to your brother and I cried every day for six months she was just distraught. You know, she blamed herself. It wasn't her fault, but she blamed herself. Obviously, it's like your child could have done something and to save him from that trauma. Uh, and then at about 13 weeks, she had a bleed when she was pregnant with me. And she said to herself, she thought, oh, this is God taking my unborn baby away from me to punish me for what I allowed to happen to, to my other son. So that was the trauma that she was experiencing. So that was the trauma that I was growing and being formed in her womb. Uh, and so I had a, a picture in prayer ministry, a prophetic picture of myself being like a bug stuck on its back with its legs kind of waving in the air. And the lie that I came to believe is that no one's going to look after me. And so then I, out of that, I need to look after myself. What I didn't realize, and this was only up until maybe six, seven years ago, um, 
I, I probably didn't recognise how much anxiety I lived with, this underlying kind of low-level anxiety, and it was all around needing to make sure that I was looking after myself. And that played itself out in, like, being first to the, to the food line and, uh, you know, because I didn't want to miss out if I'm, if I'm not there first, you know. When it came to early on, even when our kids were, were little and babies, I was like, I, I can't get up, like, during the night because I've got to, I need my sleep because I've got, you know, like, all this work to do and I can't be tired and that's going to impact that. So it was very much a me-first, very selfish perspective uh, for me. Uh, it would even come down to overpacking when I would travel places. So I remember when I went to a Hillsong conference and I had... I, had, I bought a mini disc player. I mean, you probably don't even know what they, they went, huge technology. But then I had put some you know, music on there, but I wanted to put more music. So I took my mum's CD player, which was like the size of a VCR, and I had that in my luggage. So I was like, because what if I get there and then I run out of music, I don't, and then I need to put more on it. Like I had, so I just, that was even the way I played it. How would you, you're not going to in your mind trace that back to, kind of prenatal, but that's what it was. So there was this kind of striving that happened uh, in my life. So this is a, a mini kind of testimony of even in the womb how things can impact us. And again, a parent isn't, they're not verbalising that to their children. They might be verbalising in a conversation. It can just be even a determination in their heart, like, man, this is, you know, this wasn't planned and we weren't wanting this and then the baby's taking that on board. That's that. Um, so it can come from a, a lack of affection or even a lack of laughter in the home, but a, that kind of lack of, of relational interaction, um, a lack of kind of healthy, good uh, touch and, and, and affection in those ways means the child's, you know, because we are wired to receive that. We're wired to receive affection. We're, we're wired to receive touch. Like it's even, it's, it's kind of biologically what we need. Um, they've often, they've not often, they've done studies or interviewed children and, uh, and, and the response from children is they would rather be abused than ignored. So I would rather have negative attention than no attention at all. So if you were to ask like young children when they've done these sorts of studies, so we are, we're wired for that, but then to grow up in this environment where I'm not receiving that, then inherently the child's thinking there's something wrong with me because I'm not receiving what, what belongs to me, so then they'll find ways to to perform, to, to receive that. Um, it can come from uh, conditional love. So um, this is something where, uh, where when we're affirmed um, for our good behaviour and we're you know, punished for our bad behaviour, but when that can tie into actually how, how well our parents would, would treat us. Like if we did really well, oh, we get praise, we get things, we get good relationship, we do bad, there's disconnection of relationship, and the teacher's a child, cool. If I do good, then I'm loved. If I do bad, then I'm not loved. Um, we, we create actually a conditional morality, essentially. You know, and this is why, again, for us, we, we would never say good boy or good girl to our kids. We'll say well done, so we'll praise our behaviour. But as soon as you say good boy... Now I'm actually, your behavior is determining your identity. You are good because you did good. Rather than like, oh no, you're good, I love you, you're accepted, you're all of that. Now you can do something good, oh, well done, but I'm not going to attach morality to your identity through our language. So it's again another way that it comes out. Uh, through unwise discipline. So they've got some sayings here, you know, oh, where, where did my little girl or boy go? Well, this can't, this can't be my son. My son would never do something like that. Now, all of a sudden, my entire attachment to my, to my parent, I've done the wrong thing. Now, all of a sudden, I'm not your child, in a sense. Oh, my child would never do something. You're not my, you know, like this. I mean, sometimes this is, you're talking about potentially like in Christian life-giving homes where there's just this kind of uh, inherited language then you imagine in what an abusive home would be like, where it's actually really toxic and, and unhealthy. So, but it's all of this kind of language that we don't realise trickles in and starts to form. We take it on board. It creates a framework inside of us. Uh, it can come from family values. So there's a right way to do things, and there's a wrong way to do things. If, you know, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing right. Or our family does it this way. Or you know, when you do bad things, that reflects on our family. So there's a sense of we've got to kind of keep up appearances as a family. So children are, you know, are told you've got to behave this way, do this sort of thing, anything out, you know, any kind of bad behaviour. It's not that, well, hey, you're behaving poorly and that's not good, but it's how it reflects on the family. So then your identity and your behaviour is attached to that. Cool? Yeah. 
tracking. Uh, where are we? So family position. So sometimes, again, it could be first, middle, third child. Um, you know, it's often that where they talk about middle child syndrome, you know, where the first child gets all the attention because they're the firstborn and then the, you know, the lastborn gets all the attention because there's the baby and then there's the middle child who's like, look at me, you know, don't forget, don't forget me. Um, so then they can learn, okay, I need to perform to make myself stand out so that I get acknowledged. Uh, and it can come from skills and talents, so family comparisons and competition. So again, where a child maybe does have some inherent skills and then they perform well and they get lots of praise from, from dad or in the sporting field or even how parents sometimes will kind of live vicariously through their children. Um, and so I get, even maybe I don't enjoy that thing, but I'm, my parent forces me to do it and I see the acceptance that comes from them or the, you know, they... they give me treats, they give me, you know, whatever. Even when Micah did a season of soccer and, you know, there'd be kids in his team who would get, you know, $10 if they kick a goal from their parents. You know, that was the reward to, to try and encourage them to, to do that. And uh, which you think, oh, it's great, they're rewarding them, but what it's putting into a child. You do that when you're an adult, that's one thing. When it's a child, that's teaching them how the world works. That's teaching them how relationships works. That's teaching them, that's kind of wiring them up on the inside. All right, so how do we recognize some fruits of performance orientation, or P.O.? It's, it's close to B.O. because it does, it stinks. Um, so uh, self-sabotage. So this could be something where um, they outline here, a child works to please and in the process loses themselves. They lose their sense of identity because they're trying to be who other people think they should be. Anyone ever found themselves in that situation? where you're striving to, uh, I've got to figure out who people want me to be, and then I'll be that person. But then in different environments, it's a different standard, and you become this chameleon. Every environment that you go in, you've got to kind of mold and shape yourself to, to fit into that place. So then they feel like they're fooling people. They're selling themselves for love. They become angry then, that they, they start to respond in anger because now they're having to perform for this kind of acceptance. Uh, that anger is often suppressed, and then it can lead into rebellion or self-sabotage. So in order to fail, they test to see if they'll be loved even if they're a loser. So it can then go the other way where they go from performing to then self-sabotaging and discovering, well, if I don't perform, are people still going to love me? So that can be a, a toxic cycle that people get caught in. It can produce the fruit of a need to succeed. So it's a compulsion that I must succeed. This, I must be successful. Uh, otherwise, who am I? And people aren't going to love me. People aren't, aren't going to receive me. Uh, they often fear, people with performance orientation, often fear success as much as failure. Because again, if I succeed and everything's perfect and then I don't get the outcome that my heart is longing for, then what am I going to do? You're trapped either way. I fail, I'm not going to be loved. I succeed maybe then I'm not going to actually receive the love that I want. And you, and you inevitably don't because the love that your heart is desiring is actually there's a wound there or there's something that hasn't been formed in your heart. So no matter how hard you perform, there's this insatiable desire for that acceptance, which will never come. And people with performance orientation are prone to workaholism. Another fruit of performance orientation is the need to be complimented. So constantly needing that verbal affirmation from others. Uh, they cannot believe compliments. <laughs> so then again, you're stuck. I want people to tell me how great I am, but then actually on the inside, I don't actually believe that because uh, I probably could have performed better. Or you know, So then they, they're stuck in this kind of cycle again because you can't actually receive it. You know, we talk about having a shelf for things in your heart. You know? So when someone compliments you, it's like, oh, you've got somewhere actually to store that. Uh, people with performance orientation, it's like it comes in and then just flows out. There's nowhere to hold it because there's no foundation that's been built that I can actually hold that and believe what people are saying to me. I shared this a couple of weeks ago with some people, but uh, for, in our staff um, catch-ups, when it's someone's birthday, we always kind of do a cake and then go around the room and just share words of affirmation and just share what we love about people, prophesy over one another. And uh, it was a couple of years ago that we did it with, out in the foyer here. And everyone went around and shared and we record and it's great and it's lovely. And, uh, but I said at that time, I said, I think this is the first year where I actually believe everything that you've said. 
Um, and again, it's not arrogance to say, oh yeah, I am as great as you think I am. It's like, no, I actually believe you. Like finally God's built enough of a shelf in my heart that I can, that when you say, this is what I think about you, I'm like, oh wow, I receive that. And it, and it lands somewhere rather than kind of just trickling out again. So they cannot believe compliments. Uh, they cannot receive criticism. So again, to criticize my behavior is to criticize my identity. So everything that I do is 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 t- you know, tie closely to, to who I am. So how could I receive criticism? It's, you're, you're challenging my identity. So they're compulsively defensive. So again, that's that weapon to keep people away from criticizing me as I'll defend all of my behaviors and actions. Uh, they can take responsibility for everything. So I want to do everything. I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. And they end up covering all of the jobs because... Well, they're the only ones that can do it perfectly, um, but also that then they're going to get the, the praise that they are longing for. Or someone else. What if somebody else gets the praise that I could have got? <clears throat> they're always over busy, so, so uh, extending themselves beyond their capacity. They tend to blame others. Uh, they're tired. So I must have performance orientation, but I think... <laughs> and I think... I, you can have performance orientation, or you can have children and be a pastor. That's the two. Yeah, that's the two. No, it's joking. Um, sorry? Yeah, easy. Um, so sometimes they can be angry, but often hidden. So there's a, there's a kind of bitterness that starts to kind of stir on the inside. They minister to others, but cannot be ministered to themselves. So they can give, but they can't receive. They cannot receive gifts without reciprocating. So they have to give back so then we're on equal terms. I can't be indebted to somebody. Uh, they try to control people and situations. Pretty straightforward. So again, this is where your performance orientation extends beyond your own need, but then I've got to actually get everybody else performing too in order for me to feel like I'm succeeding. So if, in, if as soon as you step into a leadership function and role, where you've got people under you, then the expectation is, my success is now dependent upon whether you succeed. Oh, that's a whole lot more work. now. So now I have to pu- push you and drive you to succeed, because if you fail, then I fail, and that's not acceptable. Uh, people with performance orientation are unable to be truly intimate. So the reality is intimacy requires vulnerability. But then if I let you see who, who I really am on the inside, you're not going to like that. So then I have to keep you at a distance. People with performance orientation are often lonely because of that reason. And they struggle to be real. You can't be real. It's not safe to be real. Because, again, I'll be exposed, you'll see me, and, then I, and the true motivations of my heart will come out. Any questions about that so far? I know I'm just kind of stepping through, but... I'll, I'll chuck them on the video um, or I can send through some notes for you later on. So, yeah. Again, if uh, this is just kind of helping you to put these things on your radar and start to notice them, and, uh, and already you might be going, That's me. And writing, It's okay. It's okay. Jesus loves you and, uh, and he wants you to be free. Ebony. Can performance orientation people be critical? Of, absolutely, highly critical of themselves. Yeah, because you're 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 battling internally, like you you're the judge of yourself. So again, it breeds self righteousness. So I determine my own righteousness because uh, I can't receive that determination from somebody else. I haven't received it from God. So again, this plays out in personal relationships and it plays out in our relationship with God. So we're constantly trying to please God but in the same way we're constantly trying to please people. Um, but if I'm, I'm then the only one that can determine whether I reach the mark or not. So then in order to make sure that I reach the mark, I have to be self-critical because I'm the only one that's looking in on the inside. No, I could do that better. I could do more. I could do, you know, what if it's not enough? And so then we get stuck in that place of, of yeah, it's just this kind of vicious cycle that we live in. What we do is never enough. Um, but then we've got to keep pushing to, to try and achieve more because then otherwise we don't know who we are and we're not receiving what our heart is longing for. So, 
answer your question? Is this touching any sore spots for people? Yeah? Cool. It's all right. Not cool, but... No, I do think that. I love, I love when God uh, pokes those places because he's, he's just, it's all about him bringing freedom. So. All right, so what are some of the uh, results? What is performance orientation? Oh, yes. Yes. And don't think that you just have it or you don't have it. No, it's not a disease that you catch. There are, <laughs> there are, there are certainly degrees. Um, and again, it, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to identify because it's often good behaviours that we're doing. It's not like toxic behaviours. Um, and again, it's, it's really about slowly um, transferring that, that motivation over to be good motivation. Um, so it, it is just a, a result of going through. And sometimes we can be, we can be feeling lonely and we just want to make ourselves known so somebody notices us. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it could be one, you know, you, a guy dresses up in a suit or a woman, you know, gets her hair done and, and just wants to go out and just be seen and noticed either by the husband or if they're single by other people. It's like there's, there's that part of us of just, it's, it's, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we can say, I'm fully free from that, because the positive motivations can look like the negative ones as well. But it's like, yeah, to, to, to be loved is, a, is a, a God-given inherent value that we have, is to be loved, to be seen, to be known, to be heard. All of those things are really, are really positive. And because we live in relationship with humans... Um, then we don't receive perfectly from other people. So, yeah, it's absolutely a kind of a scale, but it's about us kind of moving further away, mainly because of the fruit. And that's where, we, that's where you know when it's driven by performance is the fruit that comes out of it. Uh, and that's some of the things that I'm about to talk about now. <laughs> so one of the things that uh, performance orientation produces is fear. So we live in fear, we can live in fear of exposure, live in fear of not being enough, live in fear of not achieving the goal, not, not receiving the affirmation that we long for. So there's this constant kind of tension that we live in because we're fearful of not getting the outcome that we want. And because we are the one that's determining that, then we're kind of stuck as well. We're alone in that, in that journey. I produce a striving, naturally. Can we push? We need to push the boundaries. We need to do more. What if it's not enough? So then I've got to do more because in case it's not enough. Because again, I'm the judge of me. Um, God's not the ju judge of me in that, in that scenario. So I'm the judge of me. So then how do I know where the line is? Well, the line is a little bit further than where the line is. <laughs> um, so. uh, it breeds insecurity. So our, at the core of our identity is based upon how well we perform, so we are not secure. Uh, I know Bill Johnson says insecurity is security placed in the wrong thing. So when we are insecure, it's because we've placed our security in the wrong thing. So our security should be in, in who, who God says that we are, and that determination is final, it's complete. Uh, I always love um, going back to the scripture where Jesus comes out of the waters after he's been baptised, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and there's this voice from heaven that says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And we've got all the things that Jesus had done up to that point, like he'd, he'd probably made some tables and chairs and some doors and stuff like that. He had done nothing of his ministry. That was the beginning of his ministry. He hadn't you know, done the miracles. He hadn't you know, called the disciples. He hadn't you know, been crucified and risen again from dead. And God's determination of his identity is, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so we know even in our, in our salvation journey with God, there is a moment where God says, my, my, the finished work of Christ has been applied to you. You're right in my sight. Um, we're good relationally. Everything's good. Now, is there a journey of you working out your salvation with fear and trembling, being sanctified, having that all? Absolutely there is. But it's, it's not your identity. It's not your acceptance from God. And this is, again, where a lot of people just end up stuck at that point of striving for God's acceptance, striving for God to, you know, to essentially bring salvation into their life because they haven't been able to receive the finished work of Christ. They haven't been able to step into sonship with God. So they live as orphans, hoping that if, I, if I'm a good little boy, then I'll be accepted into God's family. So they have a compulsive need for approval. 
have to be approved by people. It can then lead to depression. Um, I've got a little handout here that I'll give to you. Take one, pass it on. So this is the performance orientation depression cycle, again, coming out of the, the workbook. Um, you might recognise this cycle in your life. So essentially, at the top of the circle, it's uh, you're on top of the world, then the spirits ask, is this really working? And then causes disillusionment, which causes then your performance to wane because you're realising, oh, this is not working, I'm, I'm performing, but I'm not receiving what I desire, then you become unable to work, to earn love. So now you're stuck. And now I can't even do what I need to do to receive the love that I long for. And then you end up in a, in a black hole, a place of depression. Finally, maybe you come to a point where like, oh, maybe if I do something, and then things are getting better, and then more work, more love, and then I'm on top of the world, and then it starts to unravel again, and I go down through that cycle. So if you're finding yourself in a cycle of like, yes, I'm doing great because I'm performing well, and then everything falling in a pit and you're going into depression, and then, but oh, no, if I'm, I'm going to do it better. I'm going to do it different this time. I'm going to strive. Any time where we have a revelation from God of something that's out of order, and our first step is to try harder, there's probably some performance orientation in that. <laughs> Rather than to yield, to come in repentance, to come and seek forgiveness, to seek help and support, to acknowledge your lack and let the Lord do a transformative work, that's that healthy pathway. If it's like, I'm not going to let that happen again, I'm going to try harder next time, I'm going to do it better this time, that's performance. And again, we end up in that cycle. So you're welcome to read that, the rest of that. It's good stuff. It's not good stuff, but you know, the content is good. Um, then ultimately, it leads to, uh, can lead to abusiveness. Again, particularly in, uh, in a leadership context where then you're, you're driving people beyond their own capacity, you're pushing them beyond their will because your success is now dependent upon their success. All right, so what are... How does this impact our leadership? So how does performance orientation impact us as leaders? Well... Uh, we end up leading for others and not for God. So our motivation is the acceptance of others and we're, or we're doing things for the benefit of others, uh, not necessarily because God is saying it. It's like I can find an opportunity and it might be even that person who does, who does all of these things and has their finger in so many pies because, well, the more things I'm doing, the more opportunity there is to receive the affirmation that my heart longs for. Um, but they end up doing it not because God has told them to, not out of obedience, but out of a, a longing for acceptance. So we end up leading for others and not for God. Uh, this can lead to burnout and depression. So again, <clears throat> and this is really important that burnouts become a more kind of common language these days, and that's good and helpful. But my opinion <laughs> is that Burnout is always the responsibility of the burnt out person. No one can make you burnt out. You have a yes and you have a no. And someone can demand things of you that are beyond your capacity or your ability or your, you know, it could be your emotional, physical, spiritual capacity, whatever it is. But if you give your yes, then you're responsible for the outcome. Now, again, I might say, well, if I don't do this, I'm going to lose my job. Then that's a, that's a weighty decision to be made. It's still your decision. So I think sometimes we can, we can blame burnout on the culture of a place or on, or on a boss or a person in authority. Well, they, you know, they burnt me out. It's like, nope. They may have asked you to do things. And because of performance orientation, you're like, yeah, I'll do that. Oh, I'll do that. No, I'm, I'm fine to work over the weekend. And yeah, yeah I can do that. I can do. And, and the, you become a yes person because well, this is another opportunity where I can receive affirmation. The person who's asking you is just thinking, oh, wow, clearly you have no social life and you just love doing stuff. And well, yeah, I'm asking. So, so uh, the leadership culture that we have is my expectation is if, if I ask you to do something and you give your yes, that's because you've processed through and you've determined, yes, I do have the time and I do have the capacity and I do have the ability to do that. So your yes is a yes. Your yes, you know, when Jesus says your yes, you know, that your yes be yes and your no be no. That means 
what comes out of your mouth is in agreement with what's in your heart. So if I give my yes with my mouth, it's because I've made a determination in my heart. Yes, I have a yes, I have a capacity. If it's a no, it's the same in my heart, it's a no. And again, that comes in a culture where people are also free to say no for this reason. Uh, I remember um, a time that uh, Kylie and Brad Holt were new to, uh, to Paradox, and, um, and I think Kylie would share it if she was here, but uh, she had had a, a pre-ministry session and realised that she had some performance orientation. And, uh, and, and again, that was her way of, of showing love and receiving love was to, was to serve in that way. But she had been asked to do the catering for a conference or some big event that we had coming up. So that was beforehand. She had given a yes. She had a prayer ministry and then she realised, I only said yes because of my performance orientation because I want your acceptance. And so then she's like, so actually, can I give my no? And we're like, yeah, awesome. <laughs> if, if everyone starves... <laughs> but you're not bound by your brokenness and your sin and, and your dysfunction and only giving out of that place. It's like, well, I'd rather have that. I'd rather have your freedom than, than food at a conference. And again, well, there's other ways and God sorts it out and it was fine. There was plenty of food. I don't remember what the event was for. Clearly, it wasn't that important. Um, but again, we need to, if we are leading and setting culture, we need to create environments where we give people permission to say no. And there's not a consequence of doing that. I think like what you raised the question you know, the other week was, and that was some of the things I was asking, is, like, well, is, is there going to be a negative consequence if you say no to that? Or is it actually going to be honoured? Like, no, no, think it through. Pray it through. Oftentimes, we'll give people... If I'm presenting something to someone, cool, go away, pray about it, talk to who you need to talk to, come back in a week, come back in a day, come back in a month, whatever it is, so that you come back with a, with a genuine yes, not a, not a kind of people-pleasing kind of wanting to, to do that because ultimately it's not going to work out for you or for me or for anybody. Uh, so we need to also create environments. We ourselves need to make sure that we're giving our yes is a genuine yes and we're also creating a culture where, like, is that, do you have the capacity for that? We, we, oftentimes, we need to coach people through that so that they have that freedom to go, oh, I can say no, and you're not going to punish me, or I can say no, and I'm not going to be, you know, uh, cut out of any opportunity in the future. So, again, both sides of that we need to care for. Amen? So we can end up driving ourselves and others to perform, as I think I've already covered. Um, but it's, again, creates that drivenness environment. Now, again... Passion is good. There, there can be a healthy like desire, cost, sacrifice. We don't want to flip to the other way and say, well, let's ne never do anything hard or never, nothing that costs us. Um, following Jesus will cost you. Um, serving him, it just will cost you. The difference is the fruit even of that sacrifice will be good fruit. Sacrifice can produce really good fruit. Cost can produce really good fruit. Striving for Jesus, not for your identity, but because he's like, hey, will you, go and, will you go and do this for me? And we're like, yes, Jesus, I'll go to the ends of the earth for you. And it comes out of this place of freedom. It's not because God doesn't demand of us. He commands us. He doesn't demand of us. But what he calls us to might cost us our life. And say, so, well, it's going to cost me, so it means I'm, I'm, maybe I'm performance-oriented. No, no, no. It might just be because... Can just be because we're lazy or actually uncommitted to Christ. So again, it doesn't mean that there's not a costing of ourselves, but that cost is coming out of a place of freedom and it's therefore going to produce good fruit on the other side. I don't know if you've ever had those, one of those experiences where you've kind of, you've done something really hard and you've done it for the Lord and it's come out of a place of freedom and you're like, man, that was really tiring, really exhausting and you're just on fire. And you're filled with passion. And you, know, you might go to bed for a day, but you wake up like just feeling that was so worth it, every, every part of what I did there. I'll have that sometimes, even if it's like, it could be a Friday, and I've got a counseling session with someone, and it's like, I've got nothing left. Uh, but this is so valuable, and I'm not doing it out of striving, and I could cancel at any moment, and everything would be fine. But I, but I desire to, and then you give that time, and then you come out the other side, and go, I'm so glad I cost myself in that moment because of the fruit that came out of that for me and for the person. And so, again, there can be that healthy costing yourself, um, but it's going to produce a healthy fruit. It's not going to produce bitterness and people, you know, like an unhealthy fruit. All right. Um, it impacts our leadership. It creates an insatiable desire for success or success at any cost. So if it costs people getting burnt out, well, it's worth the cost. Um, 
Um, you know, so this is where, again, when it's insatiable, so it's never satisfied, um, and it's this kind of driving for success and more and more and more. I mean, this is like anyone, I think you would even talk to people who pursue money. Uh, so they're driven uh, by money. It's just, well, how much is enough? A little bit more. Um, so, but it can be the same thing with performance orientation. Well, how much acceptance, how much performance is enough? Well, just a little bit more. Um, because again, it's an insatiable desire. Because all of that affirmation that's coming in, it's not sinking in, it's not landing anywhere, and I'm constantly driven to, to do more and more. And finally, we, we don't allow a safe place for others to be vulnerable. Because poor performance results in punishment. So this is, again, we can be, if we are in a performance-oriented environment, then we don't feel safe. If we create or allow a performance-oriented environment, then we don't allow a place for people to be vulnerable, for people to be broken, for people to be having hard days, because everything's about how well you're performing, and that only looks good. So this is a huge one, and, and when we came across this teaching, for me, I, I knew it was important that I dealt with anything in my heart, and we help people to deal with anything in their hearts. But from a church perspective, that we looked at, well, what if there's anything in our structures or in our culture that would drive people towards performance? Because again, you can say, well, I'm free from performance, but if, I, if I've created a culture or I've allowed a culture to exist where performance can still thrive, then other people are going to be stuck in that place. So again, we just would put things in place. A simple one was like, we just didn't, we essentially didn't allow people to serve unless they'd been part of the community for like six months. We kind of, we've, we've lifted off some of that stuff. I mean, it wasn't like this hard and fast rule, but it's like at the time we want to create an environment where people don't come in and like, oh yes, I'm going to, I can give my skills here and I can serve this and I can do that and I'll get acceptance and people will love me and all that. So I mean, no, no, we just want you to be loved by Jesus. <laughs> we just want you to be known by God. We just want you to be loved by people and just acceptance like, wow, well, I belong here because I'm just loved by God and I'm loved by people. And that's, that's all I need to do. I don't need to give anything. I don't need to cost myself in any way to receive that love because that's what the Father does. That's how he loves us. Um, so it's important that we are, whether it's in a work context, in a family environment, uh, or in a church context, if we're leading others, that we're also making sure that we dismantle any systems because there are systems that exist even in the church where performance is encouraged and it's, uh, it's heralded as, as you know, the great thing. Um, but it's actually fueling people's brokenness. It's allowing them to, it's, you know, it's, it's almost causing that to thrive, and that's not good. Amen? Any questions? Any revelations? Yeah. You realize how exhausting it all is, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing with dogs. They, they think, you know. Um, I remember when we got our puppy and we did listen to some teaching on around, you know, dog training. But that's like a dog comes up and lays in its back. Oh, so cute. I get to give it rubs. And then when you think about the process, the dog's coming on going, hello, come and scratch me. You know, and you're like, oh, who's the... <laughs> it's master-slave kind of, you know, scenario here. I thought I was the boss, though. But uh, it's interesting. Yeah, but again, like we... The fact is, to raise a child in performance orientation is much easier. Guilt, shame, you know, fear of rejection, all of that. So they're powerful motivators. I'm not saying to do it, and I certainly have strived to not do that. But, but you realize, like, uh, helping a child have autonomy, helping them to have their identity rooted so they don't need to do those things, then it means that they're giving out of freedom and out of choice and out of their own will and desire. It's a much healthier place to come out, but it's certainly harder because then you have the, their freedom of will to say no, and then you honor their no, and yet things still need to get done, and, uh, and so that uh, becomes a, a tricky, tricky thing, so, yep. Dr. Spock, do you remember him? Dr. Spock? Yes, as in not the Vulcan, the other guy who wrote a book, How to Raise Children, mm -hmm. our whole structure that I was raised as a generation before me was raised Wow. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, they'd probably be the last few generations in particular. Um, and again, I think then whether the pendulum swung in the in the opposite direction um, in some ways as well. Whether there's there's no praise for doing well. You know, it's kind of everyone, whether you do good or bad or whatever, everyone gets gets reward. And I don't know if that's healthy on the other end, end of the spectrum as well, because it's still performance. It's just your lack of performance now, which I don't think is going to necessarily... Yeah, yeah, participation certificates. So. so really, it is about forming identity in Christ, and identity in who God says that we are, and then affirming that, like a parent's role, a church community's role, is to affirm God's perspective on people. Again, doesn't mean we don't call things out, doesn't mean we don't keep people accountable, doesn't mean we don't encourage each other to... To, to strive for, for greater things in God, but recognising that if that foundation's not built, then the structure that's being built is going to crumble and fall. So we need the right healthy foundation, and then we build upon, yeah, doing good things for God is good, as long as it's built upon the foundation that God is good and he loves me and I'm accepted and I'm his beloved and I'm all of those things in, the, in my identity in Christ, but then I can build a, a good life on top of that. So, Awesome. Any other questions, comments? Yep. So how do I how do we help someone who is performance oriented? Oh, yeah, I don't know. What a... For some people, again, um, in, in the notes here when they talk about uh, you know, ministering to people, um, one of the hard things of performance orientation is that someone can't deal with it themselves. Like you can't, God has to be the one that, that slays them, not themselves. Otherwise, they use their performance to deal with their performance, which isn't, isn't helpful. Um, obviously, praying for them. I think one of the hard things in performances is actually only on the crash. It's only when they finally realise that this isn't working for me that they become that they come to that place that they're open to deal with it. So when those structures get overloaded, when they finally realise this is never enough, they get to an age sometimes. I mean, that's probably the midlife crisis type thing of where I've worked and I've strived and I've done all this stuff and I, I don't know if I have any more meaning in my life than what I had beforehand. And so people, and that's where people can go into, into depression and negativity or they go off the rails and do all sorts of uh, crazy, unhealthy things. Um, so I think it's, for me, it would just be having those sorts of conversations and going, oh, how, like, you know, how are you really going and, and getting kind of behind the walls of, of the facade that's put up there um, and just, uh, yeah, it depends on the, the depth of relationship. But if you, if you are close with someone, it's like, oh, like are, you, are you happy? Like, are you, do you feel content? Do you feel fulfilled? Like, and digging into the heart and... and being a kind of safe space as well for them that they could be vulnerable enough with you to say, actually, I'm not, I'm not really happy. Um, and, yeah, so. Obviously, prayer ministry. So if you're like, if you're identifying stuff, book in, get some prayer ministry. That's the, again, you need to get down to the root of where that came from because it'll be rooted. Like, and again, often in prayer ministry, it's like, if you think of a tree, there's root systems, but there can sometimes be like a tap root, like a main root where that came from. Because, uh, Again, it might be something in, in your culture, but you are probably, like most Aussie families, or if you weren't Aussie, you know, growing up, you got praise for doing good, you got punished for doing bad, and you know, you're a bad boy, you're a good girl, all of that sort of stuff can be the cultural things that enforce that taproot. So they're the feeder roots that actually enforce that, oh, that, but there was this main time where this thing happened or where I didn't receive this, and again, it could be prenatal in the womb, all of that, so it's... it's journeying with Holy Spirit to get actually to what is the root of, of this. So uh, I love the comment that Michael made around, you know, it's, it is really like a, a spectrum that we're all on, a sliding scale, but it will certainly be, it's certainly been more prevalent in my life than what it is today. Um, I've struggled sometimes with the realisation of not having it means that I'm often unmotivated for things that my job might demand of me. Because I'm like, I don't, 
I don't have the unhealthy drive to be seen or to be successful or to be famous or to be all of these things. Like I just don't, I don't have that drive. So I'm like, so then trying to find, and this is often what's hard in our Christian journey is we, the more of the heart journey we do and the more that we, the unhealthy aspects of our heart and the motivations of our heart are stripped away, then we realize I've got to find the right motivation now to do those things. Um, so where I was, I was reading my Bible and, and praying and, and going to church because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't do that. Okay, God heals me, sets me free. He deals with that religious spirit. Okay, now what's my motivation for doing those things? What's my motivation for prayer? What's my motivation for selling? What's my motivation for coming and, and hanging out with God's people? So we, oftentimes then we have to do the journey of actually developing those right motivations. I've heard a s- stories of, you know, I've heard people say, even with, through COVID, you know, and well, I would, you know, wouldn't miss a Sunday and then all of a sudden COVID comes, like you can't come and then people have this rev- revelation like, oh, I'm, f- I'm free, I don't have to go every Sunday. And I hear that and I go, oh, didn't realise that that was ever the case. <laughs> I don't have to come every Sunday, but, like, but I, I want to. So then people kind of disappear. So we have this kind of, was a mass exodus, but a significant exodus of people from uh, engagement in the life of the church because they realize I don't have to do that. It's like, cool, well, you, the reality is you never had to. That was only a determination in your own heart. But now that you don't have to, now you get to. <laughs> now you're free to do that thing and you can do it out of a place of freedom from a different motivation, not out of fear of punishment, but out of a desire to love and to give and to serve and to bless other people, so... Cool?